0: Last week, I think we saw some very, very encouraging examples in chapter 11, chapter about faith, a very subject that Christ said would be very difficult to find when he came back to the earth. And yet here you have a vast cloud of witnesses who did faithfully follow God, even though sometimes they couldn't see where they were walking or why they were going where they were going. They couldn't understand why perhaps people were trying to kill them and actually threw them into lion's den or actually literally threw them into furnaces heated seven times hotter. And they were only delivered at the last split second. Or those who willingly suffered torture and even death because they truly were surrendered, as we heard in the sermonette, God and to his way, and their lives physically on this earth were not as important to them as eternal life in the kingdom of God, and they were willing to sacrifice this life in order to have eternal life. That has to be very, very important to you, to be willing to go that far. So we have a great number of people here that are listed, some in detail of what they went through in their lives, and some summarized very quickly because there simply wasn't time in this writing to go into all the details and specifics of each of their lives, but we can do that. We can go back and look these people up, read their stories, what they did, what they went through. We are on the verge of this kind of thing happening again. These people lived in deserts and wandered about lived in caves and under rocks, any, any shelter they could find in some cases, because society was out to kill them, to destroy them, and God gave them a certain amount of help, but he also allowed them to go through a great deal. And he is going to take the ter- ones who turn out to be truly faithful by deciding to be that way and protect them, And those who will not be will have to go through this great tribulation that is going to intensify much greater in the next coming months and years. We have opportunity to be like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to be like David and Daniel, to be tried and tested now and to obey God in spite of everything in front of us, to control our emotions, our feelings, our attitudes, Go to God to be close to Him so that our reactions are spiritual, not carnal and human and physical. And if we can do that, we can be listed among these faithful someday. Now he summarized that chapter by saying, verse 39, These all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. They're having to wait in their graves, though they do not at this point know it, until we are either changed or resurrected with them in the first resurrection. So we don't consider ourselves important in a way. I mean, how can we consider ourselves in the same breath as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and those people? You know, we we can't even begin to imagine that God would categorize us with that kind of people because we look at our own weaknesses and faults and problems and sins and so on and we don't seem to be all that spiritual, not to be spiritual giants by any means, and certainly we're not. But God puts us with them in the 144,000 if we're faithful and we're part of the first fruits. Now, some of those individuals will be certainly in ruling positions and higher positions than we will be, but we're still included in the 144,000 righteous and just who are resurrected with them or changed with them. It's incredible to consider that we might be a part of that. And yet God has laid that out and said it right here. I want to point out in one parting shot before we read and leave Hebrews 11, that though these people of history are giants spiritually in many respects, in what they went through and what they did and what they faced with courage, with power, with conviction, with total surrender... Even though they did those things, they were still not without fault. Every one of the people mentioned in chapter 11 had sins and faults and weaknesses. Every one of them broke God's law at some point or another. Every last one of them. Abraham lied. Jacob deceived and stole. David did it all. But they're all there. They overcame. They grew. They changed. They moved past their weaknesses and faults, whatever they might have been, asked for forgiveness from God, and received it. And went where he wanted them to go in spite of whatever weaknesses, faults, and problems they might have possessed. Now that's a great equalizer, isn't it? We may not be spiritual giants, and yet at some point in time... Down the road in the future, if we will pass the tests, the trials, the temptations and troubles that beset us, we will be mentioned in the same breath as these people, by all the inhabitants of the earth who will worship us as kings and priests and as God. The queen of the king of the earth will be on the same level, God. We are here to become God. There aren't many religions that comprehend that. There just aren't. God made us for a very powerful, important purpose, to become God. People try to make gods of themselves on this earth, don't they? But they die anyway. And, or somebody kills them anyway, or Whatever. And it doesn't work out for them. There are people right now who are planning to become the gods of the earth, ruling in their own millennium. They're plotting and planning that as we sit here today. Not only are they are planning it, but they have put their plan into action and are taking over everything. Now they've not just started nibbling, but they've started gobbling. And their intent is to rule the world and set up their own utopia. But they will fail. Now, we look at them today, and seats of power, wherever they are around the earth, heads of state, high up in governments of the nations of this world, they look to be more important and more powerful by far than we do, don't they? We don't have the power, the money, the might, the military, the strength to do anything, we can barely accomplish supporting ourselves and having enough food and things that we need to live in the society today. Our health is getting away from us. Age is creeping up on us. We're virtually powerless, aren't we? And yet we need to understand God wants us to be in this position. Because you look back through Hebrews 11, at those people who wound up before their lives were over accomplishing great things, and they were initially powerless and weak and unable to do anything. Look at Moses who fled to the desert. He had great power at his behest, but he chose to suffer with God's people for a short time in order to live eternally. So to him it was worth the pain and the sacrifice And he was utterly powerless until God came back and gave his power to defeat Egypt. So we have to be the way we are for a while. But God says he is going to give his people in the end time great power, strength, energy to turn the world upside down. And he has to take those of us who have been weak, who have been base, who have not been anything important, and it will use us to do that, because it will be an example and a shame to those who thought they were powerful and strong in the world. Do you think the United States government would have any difficulty coming in and crushing us here today? They're a lot stronger and more powerful than we are. When we see blue lights or red lights behind our car, we get weak inside. They have the power. That's just on a very small level to write us a tiki. But it gets bigger than that. So God puts us right in there in the mix with the truly important examples in the Bible. It says that the whole world will come and worship us and bow down at our feet someday. So let's not discount ourselves in a wrong way. Let's not be prideful and vain and egocentric in a wrong way. And you know, I preach pretty strongly sometimes, and so do Nelson and Gordon and the sermonette men, to help us be very, very careful not to take the attitude of we are so important and we are the righteous because that is the overall attitude of the church at the end time that God is not happy with. So sometimes I think I may go overboard to show us that we are not important, that we are not, in that sense, the Philadelphians who have no wrong, as most people view themselves in the church today. Maybe I have to go way over in that ditch to pull us out of this one. My object is not to pull us over to the other ditch, which says, I'm bad and I'm terrible and I guess I might as well go eat worms and die. We don't want to get into that ditch. But sometimes you have to pull pretty hard from one side to get someone where they need to be in the middle. And since most of the church considers themselves Philadelphian today, we emphasize here that we all slumbered and slept, that we all became Laodicean, thinking we were okay spiritually and worldwide, when God was upset. And it's hard to shake people out of a spiritual slumber and get them to wake up with a kind of keenness and alertness that is needful. So if sometimes it is almost discouraging, recognize the purpose. That's to wake us up and get us on the middle ground of understanding that we are important in the plan of God, and yet we're no more important than any other human being. So we're important to Him as long as we don't become self-important. And self-importance is basically what Laodiceum is all, Laodiceanism is all about. We're the only ones, or I'm the only one, preaching the truth, or whatever they have to say. We're the only viable work of God. And I think that that is why it is important to stress that God's people will be called from the remnant all over the earth, that they'll come out of all the different organizations, or if they're not in an organization, if they're being faithful, they'll be called out of their solitude to become a part of God's faithful remnant. Therefore, no organization on earth today can claim to be the one and only, or the fairest of the daughters, or however you may want to term it. So the balance is that we recognize that we were important to the Father, because no man can come except the Father draw him. So, God focused on you at some point in time and called you. And you have responded and are now seeking to go his way. So, in that sense, you are important to God. The 144,000 are very important to Christ because that's his bride. And how could you be part of the bride and not be personally and individually, very important to him. So we have to recognize how much he loves us and how important we are to him, but at the same time not be lifted up with vanity and egoism and try to lift ourselves above others, to say we're more righteous than someone else. For those who stand up, as I say, I think 65 says, or somewhere right in there in the 60s of Isaiah, I'm holier than you. We are not to compare ourselves among ourselves. It just simply isn't wise. So let's recognize our importance to God and the fact that He wants to put us in Hebrews 11. He wants to put us in that category. So as long as we're humble and meek and obedient to Him, recognizing our importance to Him, but not putting ourselves over others then that will work out. Just because we have, I think, certain knowledge that the others do not yet have does not make us any more important than they are. We're all just one each, aren't we? That's all we are. Now, others out there he's working with, and they will be important to him one each as they respond to him, and those who do respond to him are going to all be gathered and protected. So if you want to be protected by God from all the trouble that is about to be unleashed on this earth, you can guarantee that by being responsive and obedient to God. Because he will account certain ones worthy of that. And it is going to be very few that can be counted. So, rest assured, he will be quite cognizant of, everyone who has set their heart to serve him and follow him. He will not overlook anybody. God is not forgetful like human beings. God knows us all. He ponders each of our hearts. He looks deep into our minds and our emotions. And you simply cannot be devoted, surrendered to God, and him not know it. It's impossible. Because he knows our hearts and minds. Men can misjudge us. God will not. Therefore, if we get our hearts right toward God and toward man, let's not make the mistake then of saying, well, if men don't matter... Only God does, because God says the way you show your love to him is by your love toward your brethren. Your attitude toward others, human beings, is how he sees what your heart really is. And that's how men will know that we're his disciples, if we love one another. That's what it's all about. So you can't ignore men and just love your God. You have to keep all the Ten Commandments. Love God and love man. have to do both. But if your heart, your attitude is right, you will be protected. He says that. All right, we have this record of these faithful people as an example for us. And we have an opportunity to join them and be a part of them to be a part of that 144,000 when Christ returns. Now let's go to chapter 12, because here it says, having this, that we have just reviewed and talked about, wherefore seeing, we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience, the race that is set before us. This is advice or the action that Paul was laying on these people and that God is laying on us by putting it in the Bible that we are to follow through on. Simply because we have these people before us who did what they did, he expects us to do the same thing. He expects us to follow through live like these people live, do as they did, and become like them. And they're positive examples. But I did want to throw in that each one of these made mistakes. So the fact that we've made mistakes, the fact that we've sinned in the past, doesn't disqualify us. What it does do, or should do, is give us impetus to change, to grow, to overcome, and be what we ought to be so that we, though we might not have been faithful in living in faith, become faithful in walking in faith. And Ezekiel makes it very, very clear that those who weren't sinning start sinning. They'll be judged for being sinners. And those who sinned and quit sinning will be judged as non-sinners. So the fact that we've sinned or not sinned in the past means nothing. It's how we end up that matters. That's the key. So he's saying here, you're not lost because of what you've done in the past or what you've thought. You've got this great cloud of witnesses, and he admits right here that he was writing to what? To sinners. Let us. He admits he was a sinner, and he admits or shows that they were sinners as well. Let us. Lay aside every weight, the things that bear down upon us, the burdens that we have. We do realize, do we not, that the burdens we carry and the weight that is upon us essentially has been placed on our backs by ourselves. It is our faults, our sins, and our weaknesses that burden us and weigh us down that make it difficult for us to do the things that we need to do. Now, we're not to lay aside the weight of responsibility to obey God, are we? When you surrender to God, you automatically take a great weight upon your shoulders because you are saying, I will be responsible. I will do what I need to do to please God. And doing what pleases God is contrary to human nature. We want to be self-obsessed. We want to do our thing. We want to have pleasure for me. So that is the basis of idolatry. I want me to be happy. I want me to do what I want to do. And if it pleases God well and good but I want to be comfortable myself first. That is human nature at work. So we do take on a weight when we surrender to doing God's way. It's a very heavy weight to carry. But we have that kind of weight which is a good weight and should not be laid aside. You can't lay your responsibility to God aside. What weight can you lay aside? The weight that you've taken on is a result of not obeying God, as a result of the sins and the weaknesses that we all have. And the sin, so he categorizes the weight with sin, which does so easily beset us. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to sin? Sinning probably is the easiest thing you will ever set yourself to do, or do without even setting yourself. It just comes easy, like gravity, you know, rolling off a log. If you're laying on a log, you roll a little bit, you just fall off. Doesn't take much. Doesn't take much effort. Sin comes easy. And it can be fun. That's the problem. Sin can be fun. But sin creates problems down the line. It can be fun at the moment, but you have to deal with the backlash. I imagine Rachel and Jacob had a certain amount of fun plotting to take the birthright from Esau. It seemed like the thing to do, and they probably got all excited about it. Well, how can we do this? We know God intends you to have the birthright, but he doesn't seem to be able to get the job done So we've got to take this in our own hands because we know it's the will of God. They knew it was the will of God for Jacob to have it. But they figured God needed assistance. See, you think about it. You're not going to do something until you find a justification for it. So you figure that the end justifies the means. So you figure out justification for what you want to do and then, go do it. So once they had said in their minds that they would be justified in taking that birthright from Esau, because certainly it must be God's will. Then they probably began to get a little excited. They had to get the guilt out of the way first. Then they got excited. Well, how are we going to do this? Well, he's going hunting. Let's put lambskin all over your arms and make you really, really hairy like he is. And... See if we can fool his father, or Isaac, into thinking that that's Esau and giving him the blessing. Well, he'd already sold the birthright. Uh, they did that with soup. But now they wanted the blessing as well. So they had to figure out a way to get that blessing. But what means did they have to use? Lying? Deceit? theft. See, there's no way to justify doing what you perceive to be God's will if you use methods that are ungodly. Anything that God wishes you to do or to accomplish that might be within his will also has to be accomplished within his ways, within his methods. So you need to think about it any time you decide You want to do something, because usually when we're about to do something wrong, we justify it, don't we? We find a way to make it okay to do it. However convoluted it might be, we find a way to make our cells feel relatively comfortable with it. It's like an old comedian, Jerry Clower, who had a certain amount of country wisdom, used to say, if you're arguing with yourself, you're fixing the mess up. You argue yourself with yourself until you find a way to do what you want and generally you'll mess up. Because you know it's wrong, otherwise you wouldn't be arguing with yourself. Sin easily besets us. It's the easy way. It's hard to resist it. So he says resist it. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. That, is a, that verse is full of good advice and wisdom. you got a lot of people here who did the right thing in spite of themselves. You take on weight of sin and temptation very easily. You sin real easily, recognize that, and then run patiently the right direction. Now, if we're impatient about it, we can get discouraged and frustrated very easily, can't we? Because all the problems and weaknesses that we face, and every human being has them, whether it's discouragement, doubt, depression, anger, vengeance, jealousy, greed, vanity, you know, on and on we could go. Anything like that, it's hard to fight off if it has become a part of our thinking and our emotions. It isn't easy. And you will tend to fail. Because whatever set of weaknesses you tend to have have become habitual. And they may have been, a pet. They may have been with you for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years. And anything that you've mollycoddled and had and enjoyed and petted and kept for so many years, becomes very, very difficult to get past and get over. And there's a process that is required. The world recognizes that in some respects because they have almost anything anonymous now, whether it be Fat Anonymous or, or Depression Anonymous or, you know, how many anonymous clubs do we have now that go through almost every habitual problem that human beings have. It is so difficult and we are so weak that it seems we must have a support group in whatever problem it is that we have. Now, I don't necessarily recommend that we all go out and and join each and every one of those whatever-it-is-anonymous clubs to get our support there. We need our support to come from God, number one, who can take away Temptation to do wrong if we turn to him with our whole heart. And number two, we are told to support and strengthen one another. To help one another with whatever problems we have. Not to ignore one another in that sense, but to help one another. And sometimes it requires tough love, doesn't it? Iron sharpening iron. There's a certain amount of friction that comes when iron is rubbed together. And for it to grind each other down, not to put down, but to grind into sharpness, requires a lot of pressure, friction, and a certain amount of heat, doesn't it? It requires that. So the first thing we've got to do is patiently recognize what our problems are. And recognition is one of the hardest things, because whatever our problems may be, we have found a way to justify them over the years. See, you have to live with yourself, don't you? you I mean, you, you are. Therefore, since you are, since you exist, you have to be able to live with yourself. Therefore, you will find whatever reason you can dream up or find or quote from someone else or whatever to justify how you are. So that, you don't feel uncomfortable and conscience-ridden and guilty about it. And one of the things we do is we wall up that area so that we do not even want to admit it exists or that it is a problem. It's called denial. We deny that we have a problem. And I will absolutely guarantee you that you will never, Overcome anything that you won't admit is there. If you will not accept that it is a problem, you will not take the necessary steps to overcome it because you simply don't admit that it's there. So the first step in Christianity is repent and be baptized. You see you must study and understand what is right. You must take a, an honest look at self and admit that this is right and this is me. And the two never will meet unless something is done. So I must admit that since this is right and I'm somewhere over here, I must admit what is wrong so that I can change it and get over here. That's why baptism without repentance is worthless. God will not give his spirit to those who are not willing to accept and follow his way. They can get dunked, but they will not receive his holy spirit and get the help they need to come here. Because he wants us, first of all, to come to the point, as Herbert Armstrong used to put it, that I'm a burned-out hunk of junk that I am selfish, vain, weak, lustful, covetous, greedy, and all those works of the flesh. And when we come to be willing to admit those things, then we can begin to repent, which simply means change. And that's why the process takes a while with us. We have to come to see ourselves in truth and honesty and then begin to repent and go God's way. And that doesn't happen generally overnight. There were a few cases like Philip and the eunuch where he explained to him out of Isaiah the meaning of God's way and the man. It just hit the man like a thunderbolt, apparently. But I've been living my whole life the wrong way. Whatever you say, I'll do. Now, if you're working with someone properly and bring them to baptism, what you have to do is discern their attitude. It's not just a matter of doing everything according to the numbers. Okay? Well, I'll take up my makeup, I'll quit working on Saturday, I'll keep the holy days, I'll tithe, I'll do this, I'll do that. It's not a numbers game of how many numbers of things you understand and then change because with so many there are sticking a sticking point or sticking points in other words i'm willing to admit and give this up but this i'm not willing to admit and give up i was never so concerned that they know everything before being baptized as I was to see that they were willing to change whatever they saw that they had been doing wrong. If there was a willingness to change, then whatever came along that they could see in God's Word, they had an attitude and a mind to change it. So they didn't need to know 100% of everything and change it all before they were baptized. They needed to have a willing attitude and tremble At God's word. So that if it was showed to them in God's word, it didn't make any difference what it was. They changed That's the attitude God is looking for when he's ready to give his spirit. Are you willing to do whatever he says? Now, some things are harder to overcome than others. For some people, smoking was not a big deal. They just quit. For others, they may have fought it for years because it was a, such a part of them and such a habit and so deeply ingrained that they had difficulty with it. I've seen people who, I believe, had God's Spirit, who really wanted to do what was right, and they would fight something like smoking for years before they overcame. And then I have someone like my mother-in-law who's a Lutheran and doesn't know anything about God, and she smoked what? What? couple of packs a day, I suppose, or maybe not quite. I don't know. She she smoked a lot. Put it that way. And then her husband had a stroke and couldn't go shop. So she went to the supermarket to do the shopping. He'd done it for years. And she saw the price of cigarettes. She asked for a carton and she saw the price. She hadn't seen the price of cigarettes in probably 20 years, I don't know. She said, "Man, those are too expensive." Handed them back to the person at the counter, and has never smoked a cigarette since. Wow. (laughs) All she had to do was see the price and say, well, I don't need that. And that almost lifelong habit just went out the window. I wish overcoming and growing were so easy for a Christian. She's not a Christian by any means. Well, she thinks she is, but she's not. She doesn't have God's help. She doesn't have God's Spirit. Nice person, but she's not converted. But it doesn't come that easy, does it? Some things might, but other things don't. So you have to run the race with patience. You can't give up. How long did Abraham and Sarah wait for that baby? They had to run with patience. They had to wait and wait and wait. They weakened at one point, said, well, God must have intended to do this through Hagar. So they tried that route. That didn't work out too well, and Israelites and Ishmaelites are still fighting one another. The end did not justify the means, even though multiple wives and concubines in that day and age, God, because of the hardness of their heart, had allowed. So it wasn't strictly in disobedience to God at that time for them to do that. But they simply thought, well, God doesn't seem to want to do it this way. He must intend us to do it the other way. Didn't work out. They weren't patient enough. But then they must have changed their attitude, decided to be patient, and God, when he intended, said, okay, now it's going to happen. They still had to wait 25 years in patience from the time it was promised. Now we have a great reward put before us and we have to run patiently day by day because we will fail. We will goof up. We will make mistakes. We try to hide those from each other, don't we? But God sees them and we see them and it discourages and frustrates us. But don't be discouraged and frustrated by your failings. Just understand you have to grow, you have to overcome, and it takes work. Admit them and get on with overcoming them. Now, how are we going to do that? It's hard, isn't it? Everyone here has tried to change something sometime. And it's not easy. All right, let's get some advice then on how to do it. Verse 2. Looking to Emmanuel, the author and finisher of our faith. He is the one who proclaimed that we need faith. He is the one that put things in front of us that we could not see all the answers to, and don't we all look through a glass darkly? We don't see all that is ahead of us. We don't see the answers. He authored it, or began it. He also will finish it. And will never leave nor forsake us, as he put it in another place. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, which was an agonizing thing. Look at all he went through physically, mentally, emotionally, to recognize probably through most of his life, if there was a time coming when he was going to be betrayed, (laughs) go through horrible physical uh, uh, pain, agony, he could read Psalm 22, he could read Isaiah 53, he could read all those scriptures about what he would go through. And he knew he'd have to go through it as a young man on top of that. So he saw it coming. But he endured that. He was willing. For the joy that was set before him. He knew. Now see, he had been God. He came to the earth, became man. He knew he could become God again. Now, him personally becoming God was not what impressed him. He'd been there and done that, okay? He only gave that up for one reason. That's so you and I can go there. So the joy that he had before him was not that he might become God again. The joy, the excitement that he had was that you and I might be there with him. Do you really believe he loves you that much? He does. Or you wouldn't be here. That's just a fact. So that was the joy that was set before him. He'd already had the other joy of being God. He knew he could go back there. But bringing us with him was the joy. He even said of those who did it, forgive them, Father, they don't know what they're doing. Even the very ones who physically killed him, he said, forgive them, I want them in my kingdom someday. Now when somebody does something to us we don't like which is not nearly that extreme, what is our attitude? Do we turn the other cheek? Even if we turn the other cheek, sometimes it's with arrogance, it's with pride. Oh, yeah, I'll turn it. Well, why'd you turn it? Because you couldn't do anything else. (laughs) You had no other option. That's why you turned it. It wasn't because your attitude was such that forgive them, Father, they don't know what they're doing to me. It was, yes, I can't do anything about it, so I'll turn it. I'll take it. I'll take it. You can't hurt me at all. Addictive, vengeful attitudes won't work. He endured the cross, despising the shame. Now, when we do something that is shameful, do we despise that shame and pick up our head and move on? We don't like to be shamed or ashamed, do we? We don't like it at all. So we try to hide so that we don't have to live with guilt and shame. He was right out in the open. You know, he was accused of things he really didn't do. He carried your sins and mine on his shoulders. Now, you talk about a weight on your shoulders... He had all the sins of all mankind on his shoulders. And it was a very shameful package. You think of all the sins and the crimes that have ever been committed by roughly 60 billion people who have inhabited this earth. And that's a lot of sin. And what if you were accused of everything that everybody has done? It was put on your back. Well, that's what happened to him. He despised that shame. He lifted up his head and said, I'll take the punishment. And as a result, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We want to overcome. We want to change and lay aside the sin. We need to look to him. He is the only way that we're going to make it is to look to him. Now see, that's why God urges us and says, turn to me with your whole heart. Not half-hearted, not partly, but total surrender to me. And if you will totally surrender, I will turn to you. That is what is required. Christ totally surrendered. He took on all the sin and surrendered his life. You can't get more surrendered than that. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. When we get a little discouraged, a little frustrated, a little peaked at other people, or whatever, we need to stop and think about our Savior and what he endured and went through for us. There is nothing we have been accused of, nothing that we have done, nothing worse than what was laid on him, times 60 billion times however many times each of those sinned. He endured that contradiction of sinners against himself. He was falsely accused, but he accepted it. Never got a bad attitude toward his accusers. How many of us are humble enough that when we're accused of something, guilty or not guilty? How many of us are able to handle that and not get upset? He didn't even get upset. He accepted. So when we get discouraged, when we get frustrated, We'd better look to him and realize that it can be done, no matter what it is. And we've all faced it. Human nature is to self-justify, to get upset, to accuse those who accuse us, to find some way to justify our action, whatever it was. That's our carnal human reaction. It wasn't Christ. He just didn't do that. He was the epitome of love. We're to love one another, help one another, strengthen one another, just as he loves and strengthens us. But you know, he can't give that to us if we don't go to him, can he? You have to go to him, and you have to go with a contrite heart and attitude. He says, we have not yet resisted the blood striving against sin. Now, he resisted to the point of his blood actually being poured out. There has been stuff written about how he actually fought himself so hard that night before he was tortured and killed that he actually sweated blood. Now, that may or may not be the case, that the pressure was so great on him that his capillaries and cells broke down to the point that it actually bled through his skin. That may be. I don't know. But we haven't resisted it to the point of death, have we? So we need to quit whining and get busy overcoming and growing and changing. And then maybe we won't have to worry about it. Verse 5, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to children. Then he quotes Proverbs 3. My son, despise not you the chastening of the eternal, nor faint when you are rebuked of him. We're instructed that, you know, we're imperfect, we make mistakes, and sometimes God causes conditions that will chasten us, that will spank us, that will bring pressure upon us in whatever way is needed to bring about change in our lives. It can be a plethora of things. See, if you believe, the God is dealing in your life. And we'd better believe it. Then, when things happen in our lives that are unpleasant, we had better see that God may be behind those things. He may be allowing or causing some of those things. We could stop right here and go right all the way through the Bible however long it took, and we could find examples where God intervened in people's lives to cause certain things to happen. Even unconverted people like Balaam, he caused his donkey to talk to him to get him to do what needed to be done. He chastened him in a certain way. Now we are converted, partially. Partially. None of us are converted. We're partially converted. We haven't been totally transformed or totally changed yet. Converted enough to have God's Spirit, then we need to be converted enough to use it to become more converted, more changed. But when difficult things happen, we need to understand that time and chance do not happen to us. Now when that was written in the book of Ecclesiastes, and Solomon said, time and chance happens to them all, he was looking at the broad majority of human beings, and stuff happens, just the way he put it. But when we are called of God, and we become his children in Christ, time and chance does not happen to us. God has angels about us. We are the apple of his eye. Nothing happens to us that he does not pass on, approve, or allow to happen. If you are the apple of the eye of God, the birds do not peck you without God knowing it and allowing it. So if something bad happens, you need to look for the cause. Why would God, maybe not cause this, but why would he allow it to happen? Because there's something you need to learn. There's something you need to change. And therefore, God allows something to happen that will get your attention, and realize there must be a problem here somehow, some way, or this wouldn't happen. How can you overcome something unless God brings it to your attention? If you have a child who has got a problem of some kind, or a weakness or a bad habit they're developing, that child is just going the way their nature takes them. So you as a parent become an intercessor, don't you? You intervene in their lives to help them change their attitudes and go the direction they ought to be going. God does that with us. And that's what Paul is bringing out. You've forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to children. My son despise not you the chastening of the eternal, nor faint when you are rebuked of him. Don't get angry, don't get upset when God chastens you. And don't give up. Realize it's for your own good. It is so hard for children to understand that that pain on their behind is for their own good. Or that the restrictions that you put on them are for their own good. It is because they're headed in a direction that is not good and therefore they need to be sent the other direction. Sometimes it's hard on whatever it is to change its direction. If you have a baseball flying this direction that has been thrown that direction, it takes a severe impact by a big piece of wood to change the direction of the ball. And it will even distort the shape of the ball. It hits it so hard. But that's what is required to change the direction of the ball. Now, if the bat misses the ball... It goes on to the catcher and stops there. But its direction has not changed. It can even hurt the catcher's hand because there's an impact there. It stops it. And when something is stopped, there is pain involved if it's coming hard enough. So when we head a wrong direction, God swings a bat, if you will, and changes our direction. He hits us alongside the head or wherever he decides to hit us. Now, God does that with purpose. It's hard for us to grasp. My son despise not you the chastening or faint when you are rebuked of him. For whom the eternal loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Love will cause our direction to get changed. And sometimes that change in direction becomes painful. Now what if we ignore, what if God, let's put it this way first, what if God ignored what you're doing or thinking and allowed it to continue? You would miss out on eternal life, You would miss out on all the blessings that are to come, the peaceful living and a perfect world. You'd miss out on that because you're not headed that direction. So maybe you kind of generally are, but maybe you're headed off in the wrong direction sometimes. Well, God is going to change your course because he loves you and he wants you to wind up in the right place. A batter changes the direction of the ball because he wants a home run. That's why he changes the direction of the ball. Hard on the ball, but he gets the home run. So if we're a ball flying in the other direction from God, he hits us pretty hard to get us back on the direction he wants us to go. It's that simple. If he loves us, he chastens us and scourges us. So when you have difficulty, and it appears God's paddling your behind for something, you should be encouraged by that, not upset or put off or frustrated by that. Just as a child, if going in a wrong direction, the parent thinks it's too much trouble, or would take too much energy, or it's easier to do it a different way, but they don't deal with that child, and they don't help him change direction no matter how painful to child or parent, then the child is going to continue to go the wrong direction. He's going to hurt himself at some point. So a parent who loves his child will do whatever is necessary to get the attitude right and headed in the right direction. And sometimes it's painful, but it has to be done. Let's go on and get more insight from God. Verse 7, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chastens not? Punishment, chastening, paddling, whatever however you want to term it, is a part of life. It's just a part of life. It's not a pleasant part of life, but he says don't get upset by it. Why do we get upset? It's because we don't want our direction changed. That's why we get upset. That's why I always got upset with my parents if they tried to change my direction by restriction or paddling or whatever. I wanted to go this way, and they were standing in my way. And not only that, they were putting restrictions on me because of it. And it was natural to rebel against going the way I wanted to go. Rebellion is just as human as every human who walks. We do not want to be told what to do. That is as deep-seated an attitude in a human being as I think there is. Wanting to do what we want to do no matter what. And sometimes we get upset with God or we get upset with other human beings who would in any way restrict us from doing what it is that we wish to do. And that is based on vanity, ego, and selfishness. That is the root of all those attitudes. I want to do my thing. Well, now, we have all committed ourselves to do God's thing, haven't we? And we made a deal with him when we were baptized. I will go your way. But then who starts welching on the deal? We do. But, can I do this too? Can I go along with this? Can I do what the world's doing while I do what you're doing? The, the, the two don't mix. They're like oil and water. It won't happen. can't happen. But God holds you to it. He is a responsible parent. And when you start going a direction you're not supposed to go, he may not jump on you immediately, but when the time is right, he will deal with it. And he will chasten you. And whatever strength and power and consistency is needed to get you turned around. Because he doesn't want to see you fail. You have to live a certain way to be a part of the kingdom of God, okay? You just have to do that. And if you're unwilling to do that, he's going to have to kill you. And he doesn't want to kill you. So, he does the next best thing and makes you think you're about to die. Without killing and maybe that'll get you on the right path. Now, it's pretty serious here, verse 8. But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are you bastards and not sons. Pretty harsh terminology there. If God doesn't love you enough to paddle your behind, then he considers you a bastard. And if your parents are not responsible enough, while you're young, to make you go in the right directions, even though you don't like it, then you're a bastard. You're without parents. That's what the word means, without parents. If your parents are there, I mean, yeah, they're there. They're physical. They're father and a mother. But if they are not fulfilling their parental responsibility, then it's like you don't have any parents. Okay? It's the same thing. If they allow you to disobey, to rebel, to have wrong attitudes when you're little, then they're not fulfilling their responsibility and you might as well be an orphan somewhere. Now, parents don't look at it that way in this society today. Well, I love them. I can't hurt them. No, you better or God will class them as bastards, as not even having parents. You know, most anybody walking down the street that's male can be a father. It's not a big deal, really. Fairly easy to accomplish. I had a little cooperation. That's easy to do. But being a proper, right kind of father is tough. It's hard. It's easy to have a child. To raise it right, that's a whole different ball game. <laughs> to accept the responsibility that goes with that little life that is made in the image of God, and to make sure you shape it and bring it along with the right attitudes in life, that's tough. Not easy. And the worse the world is around you, the harder it becomes. but it is a responsibility that God lays on you, or that you put upon yourself by having the child. You got it, now what are you going to do with it? <laughs> well, God tells you. There's a lot of instruction here in how he looks at us and how we should look at our children. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh, which corrected us, and we gave them due respect, Shall we not much rather be in subjection to the Father of Spirits and live? Which is more important? No, it's important that we respect our parents, obey them. You know, it's funny how human nature is. It seems that we have something we might want, and and in some cases it might not be a wrong thing, okay? It might be that it's not sinful, it's not degenerate, it's not immoral, it's just something we want. And if our parents say we can't do it or have it, then we get a bad attitude and we fight against them. Now, how does that help you, I ask you? What if you had a goal and a purpose that was not illegal, immoral, or wrong, but something they didn't want you to do, and you said, okay, I'll do it your way, I would like to do that, but I'll work with you and I'll... Have a good attitude, and I'll show you by the way that I treat you, that I love and respect you, and then I hope that you will let me do this. Do you catch more flies with honey or with vinegar? But human nature will cause us to rebel and fight against someone who prevents us from having what we want. Whereas our mind should be, I'll cooperate with you and do as you wish me to do in hopes that you will show mercy and allow me to have what it is that I desire when the time is right and good and proper. But that's not human nature, is it? That's why we rebel against the ministry in the church. They tell us you're doing something wrong, then we blame them. We might not blame God, although sometimes people do, for their predicament so we'll blame a human being. But God has put human beings there, and that's partly for our growth. Because one of the very things that's difficult is for us to surrender to a human being, even if they're bringing us the truth, whether it be a child to a parent or an adult to whatever constituted authority is there, be it church or physical man's government or whatever. Some people have a very difficult time not rebelling against the traffic cop. Some people get all upset and excited and bothered and tell him why you shouldn't give him a ticket. If I was a traffic cop, who would I give a ticket to? Somebody who resented that I had a badge and a uniform and a car that had lights on it. If he resented it and he showed it, I'd have trouble not writing it. I'm sorry. If somebody's cooperative and says, oh, man, I'm sorry... I goofed up, there's a slight chance you might get off, 10% maybe. Hey, I'd rather play with the 10%. (laughs) I have gotten off a few in my time. You have to recognize that authorities are placed there for purposes. They don't always use it right, that's true. And parents don't always use their authority right. But rebellion won't help you in your cause. It just won't. If one of my sons had ever come to me and said, Dad, I want to go do such and such, can I? And I'd have said no, and he'd have hit me in the face. Would it have helped his cause? I really rather doubt it. Whether he hit me in the face with a fist, a bat, or words. What is automatic with us? When we meet resistance, we resist. When our child resists us, we resist our child. The child says, well, treat me like an adult. Fine, I got no problem with that. Act like one. Act like one. If you'll act like one, I'll treat you like one. You act like a snot-nosed little brat, I'll treat you like a snot-nosed little brat. It's simple. It's the way God is. Verse 10, for they truly, for a few days, for a short time, 18, 20 years, chastened us after their own pleasure. That's a bad translation. Uh, it's not pleasurable to punish your children. My margin says, as it seemed good or fitting or proper to them. They for a while chastened us as seemed best to them. But he, for our profit that we might be partakers of His holiness. Parents don't always do it in the right way. Sometimes they just want peace, so they'll smack you around till you shut up. That isn't always righteous. It's just impatience. If they do it with the right attitude in mind, it'll be so that you might learn to control your own attitudes and approaches. And that's the way God is. He does it for our profit that in the long run we might have holy, righteous character and be partakers of his holiness. But he does it. Now, how about this? Verse 11. Now, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. We simply don't like to be told we need to change direction. It is absolutely contrary to everything that is human to want our course changed. God, eventually, if you're going to be part of his kingdom, will cause you to accept responsibility for yourself and your thoughts and your actions. We can blame anyone we want to blame. We'll get to Esau here in a little bit, who blamed Jacob and Rachel. And ultimately blamed God. He simply never was willing to accept his own responsibility in the matter. He never got over it. Though he sought it carefully with tears, he never got over it. I'm getting ahead of the story here. But we must accept responsibility for ourselves. Nobody can change you but you. Others can encourage you. They can try to help you. They can leave you alone and let you work it out. They can't change you. You have to do it yourself. And it doesn't do any good how much you blame somebody else. You live today, and you live tomorrow, and you have to deal with it. And God is giving salvation out on an individual basis, not a group basis. No chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to them which are exercised thereby. You can be punished, and maybe you can take it. You can be corrected, and maybe you can take it. You just hit me again. I don't care. It's with that attitude. It won't do you any good. Now, if we, if we take that attitude with God, he's just going to keep smacking us off and on until we change our attitude. And that's what it's all about. It's all about attitude. Because if you think you're tougher than God, you got another thing coming. He's eternal, he is all-powerful, and he can put as much pressure on as he decides to put. Now, he's made you a free moral agency, and he allows you to make choices, believe it or not, but he does. So he is not going to smack you every time you think or do something wrong. He gives you time He watches you. He wants you to voluntarily please him. But if he sees that you are on a path that is going to lead to your destruction, at some point he is going to intervene. Now, we don't punish our own children every time there is an infraction, do we? But we ponder their thoughts, their hearts, their actions, their direction, and at some point we'll say, hey, you need to make an adjustment here. You're headed the wrong direction. You're thinking wrong. So we intervene. Now, if they have a bad habit, whatever it might be, you have to be consistent in your intervention in order to help them through it and to get over it. But... You don't smack them all the time. You give them opportunity to learn. Or should. But then you don't abandon your parental responsibility and let them get away with murder either. Otherwise, they're bastards. They might as well not even have parents. Well, God is a parent. He's a responsible parent. And he's not going to let you get away with anything without at some point adjusting your course. It won't be joyous. It'll be frustrating and upsetting. But if you respond properly, it will yield righteousness. And that's his whole deal. That's why we punish our children, is that it might yield children who are doing what they ought to be doing. That's why we do it, not just for our own pleasure, or not just so it'll be peaceful for us. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees... God will smack you around, but if you'll respond properly, you'll become righteous. And with that in mind, that in remembrance, don't be discouraged and just let your hands hang down and your knees be weak and figure, well, there's no point in even trying because God's just smacking me around or my parents are just smacking me around. No, God has in mind that you become what you ought to be, and your parents have in mind that you become a responsible adult human being someday. And that's why they don't let you be an irresponsible, uncaring child. They want you to become responsible and caring and uplifting and right. That's the purpose. So don't be discouraged when bad things happen, but make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. If you find yourself being smacked around, there is a reason for it. So don't just let your broken foot head the wrong direction, but realize God broke it, straightened it out, pointed it down the right path, and walk the proper path. When you find yourself in difficulty, the best thing to do is find yourself out a way out of that difficulty. Now, if the difficulty is with God, and you want to do your thing instead of his thing, he is going to keep putting the pressure on again and again and again until you change your attitude and say, well, I think I'll walk that way for a while. This is getting pretty miserable. A parent can only put up with so much rebellion until he starts putting pressure on. And as long as you rebel, the pressure's going to get greater and greater and greater, hopefully, until you say, well, that's enough of that. I think I'll go the other direction. If I'm going to live here, I guess I better go along with the program. People learn that in the military, don't they? If I don't make my bed properly, it's going to be tossed out in the yard. And I'll have to make it anyway. If I don't polish my boots right... They're going to mess them all up for me and make me polish them anyway. If I don't get up, show up at the right time for morning exercise or whatever, then I'll be punished for it. You know, in boot camp, over a period of time, these guys begin to, oh, maybe I better shape up. Now, why is all that pressure put on them? Why are their lives made miserable? Because that's what it takes to get them to become what the military wants them to become. Not honorable, I'm fighting machines that can work properly to kill people. That's what they're trying to produce. And there has to be discipline, there has to be order, there has to be compliance and cooperation to become a good killing machine. And they recognize that, so they put you through an awful lot to get you to become part of that machine. Now, God's purposes are different, but the method is basically the same. If we are selfish and greedy and want to go our way, he will put on whatever pressure is necessary to get us to turn around and go his way. And he is implacable. He will never give up. Because once we have made this covenant with him, he is bound to be responsible to make sure that we're a part of his kingdom someday, and he will never give up on it. So it's just better to surrender and say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Okay, whatever you say, I'll do it. I'm going to walk down the right path. So he gives us, I think, Hebrews 12, before we get to the end of it's probably one of the most important chapters in the Bible. Hebrews 11 is a very, very important chapter because it shows how to have faith and how to walk by faith. And then chapter 12 follows that up by showing us the process that is required to become that way. Now, didn't God punish Moses at times? Didn't he punish David at times? Didn't he punish all these people to get them on the right path when they started to stray off it? Yes, he did. And they responded properly. When David realized what heinous sins he had committed with adultery and murder and various other things, he repented. He didn't fight God. He said, okay, I realize I did wrong. He prayed a very meaningful prayer in Psalm 51 and simply changed his direction and didn't go that way anymore. God forgave him. He's going to be king over all Israel. So it doesn't matter what you've done. If God intercedes in your life, puts pressure on you, go the right way. And the pressure will come off. It's that simple. He uses the human family and our human children as an example to show that because it's something we all live with and have to deal with. And it's very difficult for children and parents. Children, I mean, parents are having trouble submitting and surrendering to God. And children physically have trouble responding and respecting and obeying parents. So it's something that's very real to all of us. So in this all-important chapter of how to become what Hebrews 11 is, God gives us a lot of instruction to look to Christ who surrendered all, who gave all, who did not hold any attitude, any vengeance, anything against all those who hurt him. But he said, forgive them, Father. What an incredible attitude. And he said, look to him, because he's the one that can help you through this. And sometimes he's going to have to be pretty hard on you to get you to think and to wake up and to head the right direction. Well, we're out of time, so we're going to stop right there. He gives us some more instruction on doubt.